this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 19. In this episode, I'll tell the story of the birth of the famous Barkley Marathons. Yes, the race that eats its young. Are you ready for the Barkley stories? Hey, don't start on our account! (laughs) The Barkley Marathons, with its historic low finish rate, only 15 runners in 30 years, is probably the most difficult ultra-marathon trail race in the world. It is held in and near Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee with a distance of more than 100 miles. Barkley is an event with a mysterious lore. It has no official website. It is a mystery how to enter. No course map or entrance list is published online. For the 2018 race, 1,300 runners applied, but only 40 were selected. Those seeking entry must submit an essay. The entrance fee includes bringing a license plate from your home state or country. Runners are given the course directions the day before the race and aren't told when the race actually starts. They are just given a one-hour warning when the conch is blown. To prove that they have run the course correctly, books are placed at various places on the course where the runners must tear out a page from each book matching their bit number. If they lose a page or miss a book, they are out. The inspiration for creating the Barkley in 1986 was the 1977 prison escape by James Earl Ray from Brushy Mountain State Prison. Ray was the convicted assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. Ray had spent more than two days trying to get away in the very rugged Cumberland Mountains where the Barkley later was established. Ray's escape has been a subject of folklore. This episode will reveal the details of his escape, where he went, what he did, and why he was only found a few miles from the prison. This is how the madness of the Barkley Marathon started. In 1978, Gary Cantrell, later also became known as Lazarus Lake, was an accounting student at Middle Tennessee State University. He was a tough marathon runner with eight finishes to his name at that time. He even finished one marathon after shotgun pellets struck him in the legs during a race. Cantrell was interested in stepping up to run an ultra marathon, so in 1979 he and his fellow horse mountain runners created their own ultra to run. It was the Strolling Jim 40 mile run in Wartrace, Tennessee. It was named after a famed horse. It became one of the oldest yearly ultras in the country. This was Cantrell's first experience at creating a tough race. He said, six or eight doctors will be in the race, and that sort of surprised me. You'd think of all people, they'd know better. Cantrell's masochistic race directing skills were further honed when in 1981 he put together the Idiot's Run in Shelbyville, Tennessee, consisting of 76 miles and 37 significant hills. He was surprised when a number of runners expressed interest. He said, Is there no run so tough as to discourage these maniacs? 
If we had a 250 miler through hell with no fluids allowed, I think we'd get 10 to 15 people. A dozen runners showed up for the Idiot's Run and only two finished. The next year, 1982, he extended the Idiot's Run course length to 108 miles and eliminated the flat sections, gaining experience adjusting courses each year to make them harder. Cantrell explained, The objective isn't so much to see who finishes first as to simply see who survives for the longest distance. I'm confident this is the single grimmest race held anywhere in the world. An article about his race was printed in the newspapers across the country. Six of the 12 starters finished that year, the winner in 17 hours 43 minutes, so it really wasn't that hard. Contrell could do better, and he did, extending the distance to about 120 miles in 1984. Eight runners signed up that year. Gary Contrell and his buddy Carl Henn, also known as Raw Dog, became intrigued with Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee, where they had hiked many times during the 1970s. Nearby was Brushy Mountain State Prison, the home of one of the most famous prison escapes in U.S. history, James Earl Ray's escape into the mountains in 1977. It was big news. He was a famous bad guy. And then he got out of this inescapable prison. To understand the complete history of the Barkley Marathons, one must know about the rugged mountains it runs through, the violent history of the prison that is part of the course, and the men in the past who chose to escape and face the rugged mountains that eats its young. The mountains, the prison, and the escape all played a part in the birth of the Barkley. First, the mountains. The Barkley runs in the Cumberland Mountain Range in Tennessee, which includes the Crab Orchard Mountains on East Tennessee's Cumberland Plateau. These mountains also used to be called the Brushy Mountain Range. Frozen Head is the highest mountain in the region. These mountains were made rugged by erosion of many streams that cut deep gorges. They are remote and challenging to travel through and are known for their towering crags, massive bluffs, and dark caves. But there is something else about these mountains that paved the way for Barkley and its rough trails and roads. An old account said, Buried in the bosom of this plateau are huge treasures of coal and iron. In the late 1800s, the state of Tennessee leased convicts as unpaid labor to work in coal mines. Some claimed that this was a brutal type of slavery. Career miners revolted in 1891 in what was called the Coal Creek War. Labor conflict ruled in favor of the miners. To get around this ruling, and to cut out the middlemen, in 1896 the state got into the coal mining business which proved to be very lucrative. The state purchased 13,000 acres that included a good portion of the future Barkley course. They then used inmates to build Brushy Mountain Prison, a four-story wood structure, and then made prisoners do the mining in the mountains. The prison was tucked in a valley with mountains on three sides like a horseshoe. A park ranger explained recently, quote, The mountains are more of a prison than the prison is. There's only one way in and one way out, and that is through the mouth of the valley through the town of Petros. Of course, many people had tried to escape by going over the mountain, and that did not fare well for most of them. One piece of false folklore is that Brushy Mountain Prison was a very secure site, practically escape-proof. That is false. 
prisoners escaped all the time, but the mountains and the terrain did present a challenging obstacle. Officials always downplayed escapes. One said more than 100 years ago, Most of the convicts who get away are recaptured, although it is a difficult matter to trace them through the forest and underbrush. Just outside the stockade, nine bloodhounds are kept, and as soon as an escape is made, they are put on the trail of the fugitive and follow until he is found or it is demonstrated that recapture is impossible. Quite a few men who escaped did suffer in the Cumberland Mountains like present-day Barkley runners, but many made it out of the rugged terrain. From 1922 to 2009, there were hundreds of escapes. Most of them were because the prisoners were constantly being moved to and from the mines, the prison farm, and the courthouses. But many escaped from the prison itself. They would escape on foot, in stolen cars, and in 1931, one even escaped on a mule. Mining in the mountains near Brushy Mountain Prison was harsh, dangerous work, and many prisoners died in them. Early on, 13 died in just a 15-month period. These deaths were rarely reported in the news. The mining business for the state was very profitable. In 1900, the mines brought in more than $175,000, worth more than $5 million in 2018 value. Eventually, more than 1,000 tons of coal was pulled from the mines each day. A prison official in 1907 gave this highly suspect description of working the inmates. Every convict is allotted the task of digging a certain quantity, and the work of each is checked each evening. Should he finish his task before the time for stopping work, he is permitted to spend the remainder of the time in the mine as he pleases. The men were awakened each day at 5.45 a.m. by a whistle and quickly given breakfast. They then marched in lines to their tasks. Mine 1 was very close to the prison. They walked up a steep trail and into the mine, carrying their lunch pails. They worked until 4.45 p.m. In 1932, former inmates wrote articles about the terrible conditions of the prison. After working in the mines during the day, they would spend the night in the overcrowded, disease-infested building. A 1931 investigating committee reported, Conditions at the state's Brushy Mountain Prison at Petros approaches conditions which prevailed in the Siberian prisons under the old Russian regime. The 35-year-old overcrowded wooden structure was a dangerous fire hazard. The new commissioner over prisons called it one of the worst things in the state. More than 900 inmates were held there. In 1933, 182 prisoners rebelled, barricading themselves in a tunnel and refused to come out. Come out! Come out! Come out. No! They were protesting treatment from the prison guards. Flogging was known to be frequent. State Commissioner of Institutions, E.W. Cock, said, We plan to just starve them out. They will come out sooner or later. We don't expect any violence or serious trouble. Authorities gave an unbelievable reason for the mutiny, that the prisoners were upset about a recent search conducted by the new warden that confiscated files, hammers, and other weapons from the men in the prison. By the evening of the second day, all but 17 inmates came out of the mine. The next day, the remaining men gave up their strike. The prison warden resigned because of the strike two days later. 
Shamefully, prison officials stated that the leader of the strike was diagnosed through a blood test as being insane and was shipped off to a mental institution. The event did spur a new effort in the area of prison reform and improving conditions. In 1933, construction of a new rock prison in the shape of a Christian cross was approved. It was constructed out of sandstone from a quarry on the site. The inmates did the construction and at least two died from a reported accident. The structure was completed in 1935. The prison population grew to more than 1,000 prisoners. On March 27, 1938, a large number of prisoners from Brushy Mountain escaped from a coal mine located at Frozen Head, where the Barclay course currently runs. Because the mining was so profitable, inmates were forced to mine even during the night, but were incentivized with a payment of 25 cents per ton of coal. Eighty-five men were working the night shift. The guards didn't go down into the mine, but a foreman was supposed to be watching over them. However, that night, the foreman was fast asleep. The prisoners had discovered a soft seam of coal about 1.5 miles into the mine. They dug a 30-foot shaft that was 2 feet by 2 feet and then used some dynamite to blast the final opening out on the mountain slope. Their foreman, who was fired the next week, did not hear the blast and remained asleep as prisoner after prisoner slowly squeezed through the shaft to freedom at about 4 a.m. When the night shift was over, the guards at the mine entrance only counted 37 men. They first thought the prisoners were in mutiny down in the mine, refusing to come out. Come out! Finally, one of the inmates told the guards about the escape. A total of 38 men had escaped into the future Barclay course. The alarm was sounded and continued for hours. Posses were formed, and they unhappily trudged up into the rough mountains. Civilians quickly joined in, including mountaineers led by bloodhounds in the untracked wilderness. The warden said that the escapees were, quote, scattered all through the mountains, but we're going to get them back. The news reported, the small army of more than 100 volunteer deputies armed with squirrel rifles, shotguns, and even pitchforks spread a 20-mile ring around the prison in the event that the men had hidden in the vicinity. By the evening, 17 had returned to their cells. Some of them, quote, trudged back to the prison on their own free will and surrendered after struggling on the Barclay course. They chose to return rather than suffer from exposure and hunger in the mountains. Dressed in prison stripes, it was feared that the convicts might raid homes to obtain civilian clothes. Every light in the town of Petros burned throughout the night, and residents who remained in the town stayed up fearful through the night. It was discovered that some of the prisoners took sticks of dynamite with them, which heightened the danger of the trace. Warnings were broadcast as far as 70 miles away. By the next day, 12 more men had been captured without firing a shot. Local residents were helpful catching the escapees. Uncle Ike, a man in his 60s, was at home sick with pneumonia when he encountered four inmates and held them at gunpoint until the authorities arrived. Two escapees successfully made it through the backcountry and fled into Kentucky, about 50 miles away where they were caught. After 60 hours, seven remained at large, and another was found the next day. 
One of the six surrendered more than one month later in Denver, Colorado, who said he had been all over the country but was hungry, broke, and tired of dodging the law. It is unknown if the other five were ever apprehended. One day during May 1840, a crew of 22 inmates were working on a water reservoir several hundred yards outside the prison walls. When they saw their chance, six of the prisoners attacked their guard with shovels. One of them grabbed a pistol from the ground and shot and killed the guard in the back as he lay on the ground. The six then fled into the mountains, not understanding what they faced. Five of them were recaptured after three hours and bloodhounds were on the trail of the other, 24-year-old Hauer Overby, scrambling up Frozen Head. More than 100 people scoured the tough Cumberland Mountains near the prison, but after a day, the warden called off the search and said, I have given up hopes of catching Overby immediately and must conclude that he has made good his escape. Overby, a terrible man, had previously escaped from a Georgia chain gang where he had been serving a life sentence for murder. Overby was eventually caught, given 10 more years in his jail time. He killed two more men while in prison and in 1964, after another escape from Georgia, was recaptured and admitted that he had been the one who had killed the guard at Brushy Mountain. Brushy Mountain was once referred to as the most violent place in Tennessee. In 1950, the warden admitted that they whipped prisoners. We use it infrequently and only for such offenses as escape attempts. The whippings are not brutal, usually only about eight licks. In March 1958, a riot was staged by about 250 prisoners. All guards were withdrawn to avoid having them taken as hostages. The warden said, I don't know what they are rioting about. But they've really torn up the place. We had to use tear gas to quiet them down. They've torn out a lot of plumbing, and we just don't know whether they will be able to force their way out. On the second night, their riot was halted by a gunfire barrage from the authorities outside. News of the riot was widely covered in newspapers across the country. The state corrections commissioner negotiated with the prisoners who were protesting cruelty and unequal treatment of prisoners. A prisoner spokesman reported, They gave us everything we asked for except two things. They wouldn't give us a five-day work week in the mines, and they wouldn't agree to stop using the strap. In 1966, a cave-in occurred in the mine where 80 prisoners were working. It took work crews an hour and a half to reach the men who were nearly a mile down into the mine. Two men were killed, and two others were injured. One of the injured said that the roof just came tumbling down around them and trapped them beneath the tons of dirt and rock. The warden seemed to just brush it off and said, It was just one of those things which happened in a coal mine. Sadly, the two dead men had been in prison for petty larceny, but as a result of the cave-in were given a death sentence. Thankfully, this helped accelerate closing down the mines and for the state to pull out of this harsh system. The commissioner said, We are losing money in our coal production there, and it was decided we would pull out. Besides, the purpose of prisons is to rehabilitate men. The prison was upgraded in the 1970s, and in August 1976, it was reopened as a state-of-the-art maximum security housing for Tennessee's worst offenders.
James Earl Ray was born in Illinois in 1928. While in his 20s, he had plenty of run-ins with the law. He was convicted of burglary, armed robbery, mail fraud, and forgery. He spent four years in Leavenworth. Once out, he returned to crime and was sentenced to 20 years in prison for repeated offenses. In 1967, he escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary by hiding in a truck returning from delivering bread to the prison bakery. On the run, Ray traveled throughout the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. In 1968, he underwent facial reconstruction to hide his identity. He then made his way to Birmingham, Alabama, bought a rifle, ammunition, and on April 4, 1968, killed Martin Luther King Jr. at Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Ray fled to Toronto and then to England. A massive manhunt took place and he was eventually arrested at London's Heathrow Airport two months after the murder as he was attempting to fly to Brussels on a false passport. British police spotted his alias on the passenger list of a Brussels-bound plane on the 8th of June and he was arrested. He was sent back to the USA on the 19th of July, handcuffed to the seat of a jet. Ray confessed, pled guilty to escape the death penalty, and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Three days later, he recanted his confession, and over the years, many books have been written on conspiracy theories behind the assassination. Regardless, Ray started his prison time in 1969. In 1970, once Ray's appeals were rejected, he was sent to Brushy Mountain Prison on March 21, 1970 under heavy guard and during the night. The warden said Ray was just another prisoner and bragged that he had never lost a prisoner by escape. With Ray's previous escape success in Missouri, he immediately sought to escape Brushy Mountain. On May 3, 1971, Ray made his attempt similar to the famed successful escape portrayed in Escape from Alcatraz. He used tools to scrape away cement from a concrete block in his cell wall and left a dummy in his bunk. He had obtained hair from the prison shop. He crawled out of his cell into an air chamber, then ripped the bars from a ventilation fan and escaped into a prison courtyard. However, he made so much noise in the chamber that it alerted the guards who started doing a head count. Ray then made a mistake and used the wrong concrete tunnel to crawl about 100 yards outside the prison walls. It turned out to be a tunnel from the steam plant and was nearly 400 degrees inside. He was only in the tunnel for about 10 minutes and suffered a few burns. A report explained, Leaving his escape tools, a hammer, chisels, and a crowbar, Ray huddled in the shadow of the prison cell block and tried to figure out another way out. The guards found the broken bars, and he was caught at about 3.15 a.m. He offered no resistance when the guards surrounded him. Ray had a history of bad getaways. After robbing a grocery store in Chicago, he fell from the getaway car and was captured. After stealing a typewriter in Los Angeles, he dropped his bank book at the scene. After a Chicago robbery, he fled into a dead-end alley and was shot. Trying to escape the law in St. Louis, he jumped into an elevator but forgot to close the door and was dragged out. In February 1972, Ray tried again. Guards caught him trying to saw a hole in the ceiling and roof of the prison gymnasium. The warden explained, We had a couple of men get out that way before I became warden, 
and I suppose he thought he could do it too. Ray had obtained a hammer, makeshift saw, rope, block and bit, and some plastic wood. He had cut through the ceiling of the room over a period of time while movies were being shown in the darkened auditorium. It was believed that he had been working on it for some time. He was punished with 30 days in a disciplinary area. Then came the big escape. In 1977, mountains above the prison were referred to as the third wall. The prison warden, Stony Lane, commented, You might get over the first two walls, but you still have another huge wall to get over. In June 1977, Ray successfully escaped the prison one evening before dusk during a diversion with five others. A fellow prisoner, Larry Hacker, planned the escape, and a fight was staged where the guards rushed to the scene. A man fell down and faked a broken ankle. Another man faked like he was going to try to escape in another location and approached a wall. They weren't allowed to be within 10 feet of a wall. Unseen over in the northeast corner, the escapees scaled a 12-foot wall on a makeshift pipe ladder that had been hidden in sections around the yard. The top of the ladder was in the shape of a semicircle to grab the wall, and the bottom had T-bar-like footholds. They climbed the wall near the corner of the yard where the mountain slope met the wall. A wire carrying 2,300 volts of electricity topped the wall. The winter storms had caused the bluff to erode and had filled in an area. By running along the top of the wall, they reached a part of the wall over which there were no wires. The inmates knew that a guard at a nearby watchtower typically read a newspaper or slept. He was later fired. Ray went over the wall first. Soon, a guard spotted the men escaping and shouted, Look, over the wall! A guard from a tower started shooting, first with a shotgun and then with a rifle. A seventh man, Ward, was shot twice in the leg and fell over the other side of the wall. The shooting guard could see the rest scrambling as hard as they could up a hill on the other side of the wall. Ward was quickly captured. The rest had disappeared into the forested slope just 20 yards from the wall. Ray, with two companions, initially went straight up the slopes of Frozen Head, a climb of nearly 2,000 feet. The prison whistle blew six times, one for each escapee. It could be heard all over the nearby town of Petros. Everyone picked up their phones at once to find out what was happening. It overloaded the system and went dead. The guards first searched the tunnel that a stream flows under the prison and sealed off one end. Because dark arrived, they couldn't do a major search until daylight. Ray's strategy was to travel during the night as much as he could and during the day hide and hunker down more as search planes and about 15 helicopters searched and passed overhead about every 15 minutes. During the day he would also grab sleep for an hour or two at a time. Because of the need to constantly hide during the day and move mostly at night, his travel was slow. Folklore blames his slow travel on the rugged mountains and that certainly was a factor but perhaps not the main factor. During the first day on top of Frozen Head, he could see a long way off and knew that the searchers had no idea where he was and that there were not any dogs on his tail coming up from below. A prison spokesman said, Unless they have outside help and know the area extremely well, most people tend to get lost. 
Trackers and hounds waded through the thick underbrush and heavily wooded forest. The prison bloodhounds had been trained for months on trails. Local residents also headed into the hills with shotguns for the excitement of the chase and the possibility of collecting the $25 bounty for each fugitive. The dramatic escape captured worldwide attention and about 300 reporters came to the scene. Police with bloodhounds on the ground, helicopters in the air. All of them scouring a five-square-mile area in the rugged Tennessee hill country around the maximum security Brushy Mountain Prison near Petrus, Tennessee. The object of their manhunt, six convicts, including James Earl Ray. Ray was quickly put on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Warden Lane said, I've never seen anything more chaotic. One network television cameraman carrying a huge amount of equipment turned over a large trash can to stand on for a better view. He fell right through it. News helicopters were getting in the way of helicopters conducting the search. Today, over 250 persons participated in the search of the rugged terrain of the East Tennessee Mountains. At 10.30 this morning, bloodhounds gave a clue to the whereabouts of at least one escapee at a dried-up creek. Authorities then found a tennis shoe print believed to belong to inmate Larry Hacker. Still, no sign of Ray. Then, early this afternoon, 27-year-old David Powell was picked up near the Frozen Head Park. He did not resist arrest. The search area for all the men was about a 10-mile radius from the prison and eventually extended 25 miles in all directions. A special six-man team familiar with the wild mountain terrain searched possible hiding places and springs where the men might seek water. The governor assured the public with an untruth. No one who has escaped this institution has ever made it out of the mountains. Martin Luther King Sr. said that he was praying that Ray would come back alive. One searcher commented, It's harder at night. A man gets confused in these woods. He could fall over a mountain. A plan was devised to flush out the escapees. They cleared the side of the mountain of searchers and dogs and then sent a group of men to the top of the mountain. The force would then move down the side of the mountain, forcing the escapees toward the road at the bottom. Officers were placed every 100 yards along the road, which was State Road 116. Around midnight of the third night, the bloodhounds picked up the scent of Ray and two others. The men decided to split up. One man was quickly caught, but Ray ran on for the next couple hours. It was reported, it was reported, Ray ran through the forest, his exhaustion overcome by adrenaline. He slid down a 20-foot embankment near State Road 116, a two-lane blacktop road that winds its way eight miles to the prison gate. Actually, the distance was only about four miles by car and 2.5 miles as the crow flies. Ray crossed the road, slid down a 40-foot embankment and into the nearby New River where he fell in the mud. He decided to circle back, trying to confuse the dogs. He darted back into the underbrush, through a clearing, and again into the safety of the trees. He found a spot with leaves and brush and laid down. He frantically pulled wet leaves over his body. He was likely near the bottom of what became known as testicle spectacle. A dog had his scent and found him in a pile of leaves at 2.30 a.m., after 54 and a half hours on the run, he was caught and immediately handcuffed and searched. During his escape, he had covered at least 12 miles dodging pursuers. Another escapee had made it into town before he was apprehended. A map was discovered on Ray and it showed that he had made a wrong turn and went too low. 
The men were instructed that if Ray was found, they were not to blast the news over the radio because they didn't want the FBI involved in the capture. So a code word of shallow was used to indicate that Ray was captured. The code name for Ray was Big Apple. Ray was returned to prison. Warden Lane had been confident that Ray would eventually come down from the rugged mountains. It made no sense, no sense at all for him to escape into those woods unless he had a way to get out of them. None of the inmates are here for using good judgment. A prison spokesman said Ray looked like a pig wallowing in a sty when he returned caked with mud, hair wet and matted, cut with briars and very hungry. Back at the prison at 2.45 a.m., he was questioned, gave only one-word answers, given a medical exam, allowed to take a shower, and only given a glass of fruit juice before bed. The next day, he slept nearly the entire day and was fed better. Ray pled not guilty to the escape, and a year was added to his sentence to bring the total to 100 years. When Ray was interviewed a few months later about his hours of freedom, he remarked, quote, That's wilderness out there. I must have been in places where no human ever had been. There's heavy brush up there and things like that. He only took some wheat germ with him and said, I mostly thought about food. That's the problem when you get out there. This time of year, there's nothing up there except green berries. Ray continued, There are a lot of cliffs and ledges on them. You can sit under the ledges. There are coal mines up there, but it would be foolish getting into one of those things. That's usually what they shake down first. Drenching rain had slowed him down on the second day. He said of his capture, I wasn't happy about being run down, but the hunger really kind of dulls your emotions in some ways. In 1981, three inmates attacked Ray. Ray had received 22 stab wounds to his face, chest, and arms. It took 77 stitches to close the wounds. None of his wounds were life-threatening. Ray was diagnosed with liver disease in 1996 and died in the Nashville prison in 1998 of liver failure at the age of 70. Brushy Mountain State Prison was shut down for good in 2009. In 1985, Gary Cantrell had been intrigued by the few miles Ray had covered back in 1977 during those 54 and a half hours in the mountains, feeling that he could do much better. When James Earl Ray escaped, and I'd, I'd been backpacking up here for years before that, so we watched it on TV like everyone else. And we were laughing at him only making eight and a half miles in 54 hours. And I said, you know, in that length of time, I could have gone 100 miles because I was young and cocky. <laughs> and, and all of it came together and the Barkley was born. That year, Contrell and Hen went up into that wilderness to backpack in two days the Boundary Trail, about 20 miles, constructed by the Civilian Conservation Corps decades earlier. They had just made it a park when we went up there and did that. We weren't even aware that we got there and they had a trailer with park rangers. The first thing it said was that to go on those trails, you had to get special permission from the rangers. And they didn't want to let us go. And then they tried to talk us out of it because they said they would just nobody had made it all the way around those trails. And they would just have to come and rescue us. And we we said, no, no, we will do it. We got through. We hiked half of it the first day. 
and then camped overnight and then hiked the other half of the loop the, the next mo- next day. And then we came back to the ranger station and said, oh, yeah, we, we did it. It was fun. And we have friends who would really enjoy coming out here to do this trail. <laughs> the idea for the Barkley Marathons had been hatched. Stay tuned for the next part, Barkley Marathons, the early years. If you enjoy these podcast episodes and want to help contribute, please visit ultrarunninghistory.com and please use the donation button. With that, this is Davy Crockett and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>